Rock is Lit! Welcome to Rock is Lit, the podcast that takes listeners on the quest to find the very best rock novels and explore the propulsive energy and raw power of these stories about music, the people who make it, and the characters who love it. Rock is Lit is a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. I'm your host, Christy Alexander Hallberg, author of my own rock novel, Searching for Jimmy Page, from Livingston Press. Find me on Facebook, at Christy Alexander Hallberg, and Twitter and Instagram, at Christy Hallberg. Visit my website, at ChristyAlexanderHallberg.com. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe, follow, and spread the word. We've got a great episode for you. Zachary Lazar is here to talk about his extraordinary novel, Sway a story that brings together the early days of the Rolling Stones, including the romantic triangle of Brian Jones, Anita Palenberg, and Keith Richards, the life of avant-garde filmmaker Kenneth Anger, and Charles Manson and his followers. Later, playwright, journalist, editor, and musician Tony Sokol drops by to talk about the Stones' involvement in the occult. And finally, I'm excited to welcome Zena Shrek. Zena is an artist, musician, Tibetan Buddhist yogini, and the goddaughter of Kenneth Anger, as well as former high priestess of the Church of Satan, founded by her late father, Anton LaVey. She will share her memories of Kenneth Anger and her insight into some of his iconic films, especially the 1969 film Invocation of My Demon Brother, a movie that connects all of the aforementioned folks in Sway. You won't want to miss that. But first, we're joined by Zachary Lazar. Zachary is the author of five books, including the novel Sway, the memoir Evening's Empire, the story of my father's murder, and the novel I Pity the Poor Immigrant, which was a New York Times notable book of 2014. His novel Vengeance was the 2019 selection for One Book One, New Orleans. His new novel, The Apartment on Calle Uruguay, was published in April 2022. His honors include a Guggenheim Fellowship, a Hodder Fellowship from Princeton University, and the 2015 John Updike Award from the American Academy of Arts and Letters for a writer in mid-career whose work has demonstrated consistent excellence. Zachary serves on the advisory board of the Pen America Writing for Justice Fellowship and the selection committee for the National Book Foundation's Literature for Justice program. He's on the creative writing faculty at Tulane University. Thanks for coming on the show, Zachary, and congrats on the new novel. Oh, thank you very much, Christy. Thanks for uh, thinking of me for the show. Absolutely. I'm going to assume you're a Rolling Stones fan, but before we talk about them and their role in Sway, I'm curious about your other musical interests. So let's play a set of five questions. What's the first album or record you bought? Well, it's embarrassing to admit, but uh, it was uh, Wings at the Speed of Sound, Paul McCartney and Wings. That's not embarrassing. Come on. Uh, well, silly love songs. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I, actually, I can't get it. I can't get I have to admit, I still like that. The baseline of that song is kind of amazing. I uh, I read some some piece not long ago on the internet somewhere where some guy was arguing that the wings were better than the Beatles. Mm. Uh, and uh, I couldn't tell if it was a joke or not. It was really, it was very nerdy, sophisticated music writing stuff, you know, but uh, right. I, I think it was sincere. Well, yeah, I, I remember getting into an argument with a friend who said the monkeys were better than the Beatles. So mm. that, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. What was your most memorable live music experience? Uh, lots of them, but I think I'd choose the first ever concert I went to, which was the Rolling Stones and uh, the Tattoo oh. You tour when I was like 12 years old. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was I, having never even seen a rock concert at all to have that be the first one was really kind of amazing. 
And that's incredible. Yeah, I saw them on the Steel Wheels tour in the late 80s, very yeah. early 90s, I forget. But yeah, mm-hmm. they put on quite a show. Yeah, indeed. indeed. If you had the opportunity to interview an artist or a band, who would it be? And what's one question you would ask? Well, right now, the guy that came to mind is no longer alive, but <laughs> but it's Arthur Lee of the band Love. Of Love, yeah. Yeah. And I would really like to talk to him about, you know, what was it like to be a black man at that time in a mostly white scene, rock and roll scene, and how did he feel about his kind of project, I think, was to sort of bring British invasion invasion music back in the back to uh, uh, to reverse it to be an American making British American music and a black American doing that mm-hmm. uh, you know because most of those British invasion bands were were white Englishmen trying to sound like black musicians and he was yeah. kind of doing the reverse so I'd be interested to hear about that yeah if he were still alive I'd ask him what was it like working with Bobby Beausoleil too <laughs> well I forgot <laughs> about that part of course yeah yeah Oh, so what's on your what's on your playlist now? My playlist, um, I was kind of late to get to this new Spoon record, Lucifer on the Sofa, and I've been listening to that constantly. It's very ah. good. Uh, and then I had a, another one of these Exile on Main Street periods because I was in Colorado where there was no internet, and I only had a little bit of music downloaded to my phone, and one of the few things I had was Exile on Main Street. And loves forever changes actually. So I was mm. listening to that stuff kind of on a loop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, those are two great albums to have on loop. Indeed. Yeah. I mean, yeah. how can you get tired of either one of them? I've got them both on album and CD, and they're they're favorites of mine. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So, which artist or band would you like to see featured in a rock novel in some capacity? I would like to see Lou Reed featured in a novel. Uh, okay. I think his private life seems to be very unknown as sort of uh, he had a lot of different uh, periods in his private life everything from living at home with his parents after the velvet underground didn't mm. didn't pan out to uh, to having this long uh, marriage to a trans uh, trans woman I would love to know more about all of these different uh, facets of Lou Reed's life because I'm a huge fan yeah that would make an interesting novel for sure let's take a short break and we'll be back with Zachary Lazar and make sure you stick around for the last segment of the show when Tony Sokol joins Rock is Lit to talk about just how much sympathy for the devil the Stones had back in the day And finally, Zena Shrek pops in to share her memories of Kenneth Anger and some of his films featured in Sway. This is Zachary Lazar, and you're listening to Rock is Lit. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, 
Yeah. Even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. And we're back with Zachary Lazar. First of all, I love this novel. I first read it last summer before this podcast was was ever a a germ of an idea in my mind and loved it. But it it encompasses a period that I've always been interested in. And it was funny because I had uh, Janet Fitch on the show a few weeks ago and we were talking after the show was over and she was saying, you really ought to get Zachary Lazar on. Because Sway is such a great book. And I said, yeah, I know. I've, I've read it and I'm, I'm working on it. So I'm really glad we were able to make that happen. Um, but I, I, it's a novel that I read it again in preparation for our interview. And I think it's a novel that really needs to be read more than once to fully appreciate all of those, um, all of the ways that the three stories kind of intertwine. I mean, you've got the Rolling Stones, avant-garde American filmmaker and occultist Kenneth Anger and the Manson family converging in various ways during the late 60s, but mainly through the making of Anger's 1969 film Invocation of My Demon Brother, in which Manson family member Bobby Beausoleil portrays Lucifer and Mick Jagger provides the soundtrack. So what sparked your interest in this period and these people? Um, I went through one of these experiences that I have had several times now, but hadn't had before because it was a while ago where I, I came to some music that I hadn't listened to in a long time that I had always loved, but I had just, it had been dormant for a long time. And that was the Rolling Stones in their kind of great, I think their best period, which is 68 to 72, Mm -hmm. the uh, beggar's banquet through exile stuff. And I, and I hadn't listened to that in years. And, and so I heard it with these fresh ears and was just, uh, newly completely blown away by it. Uh, it, it's such great music and it's so powerful. And I, I kind of just wanted to find a way to write a novel with prose that had the same kind of sound as that music did. And, I just started to think about how you could write a book with the Rolling Stones in it and I, and I, I uh, as characters. And I, I don't know, I think I started doing it as simple as that at first. And then I, I, I must've decided that it needed some, it, it couldn't just do that. Mm. It couldn't just be a, a, a fictional version of a bunch of biographies yeah. that I read about the Rolling Stones. It, it needed another, uh, it needed some other elements to make a bigger statement. And so I think it was Kenneth Anger who uh, 
has a you know minor appearance in everything you read about this stuff. Every kind of biography will read about the Rolling Stones. He'll show up. Right. I didn't know much about him, but I I happened to live in this uh, in the in my in my neighborhood in New York City at that time. There was a very good video store. It was when you still had to go to the video store to rent them. VHSs and uh he had all of the Kenneth Anger stuff there mm. for some reason and and uh those movies I thought were incredible so I I and I'd always been kind of darkly fascinated with Charles Manson and so Anger was the way to connect all of those different yeah. things together which I could hear in that music in the first place I mean that you know that there was there's an undercurrent of uh well, I think there's an undercurrent of violence in the music. I think sexuality for sure, and some swirl of those two things that is kind of demonic or satanic. Yeah. yeah. So just in case there are some people out there who aren't all that familiar with the Manson family situation, and mm-hmm. maybe particularly Bobby Beausoleil, can you kind of give a, a, a recap of, of what happened with them? Sure. I mean, the, the Manson family are most infamous for these senseless murders that they committed in uh, Los Angeles in 1969, Sharon Tate and a, and a couple of other people uh, in Hollywood, in a, not in Hollywood, but Hollywood people. Uh, and then a, a husband and wife, the La Biancas. Um, it turns out that these were likely copycat crimes that were designed to cover up a previous murder that one of their circle had committed and that guy is Bobby Beausoleil. And, and I think the real story of that murder is much simpler than, than uh, these Skelter. other ones. Yeah. yeah, it was just a drug deal that had gone mm-hmm. bad. He was he, he was in trouble for dealing uh, drugs to this biker gang who were going to, you know, rough him up if they didn't get their money back from him. But he didn't have their money. So he went back to try to get money from the guy he had bought the drugs from. And it got very ugly and then uh, became the first murder. Mm-hmm. And, and Bobby Bosley did that, did that killing uh, and then tried to sort of cover it up in a way by <laughs> writing in blood on the walls with this, this, this man, Gary Hinman's blood and so that it would look like it was a, a political killing of some sort. I think like he was the trying Black to, Panthers. Yes. The Black Panthers. Yeah. Um, the the uh, the the strand of racism that runs through this mm-hmm. story is, is is very interesting to me now. I, I didn't I didn't really get into that when I was writing Sway, and I guess if I were to do it again now, I would. But uh, it it was just not in my on my front yeah the front of my imagination at the time. But but I you know I I, I think that the the thing about Bobby Beausoleil that was interesting to me was that he w- would have wanted to be. Mick Jagger, or Keith Richards, you know, he was, he was a, uh, apparently a fairly talented musician, uh, who was involved with the band love, who were the biggest band in Los Angeles for a while until the doors sort of uh, left them in their shadow. But Beausoleil was in love for a little while. I, I don't think I've ever been able to find any songs on which he actually plays. Uh, but well, wasn't he with, wasn't uh, he with Arthur Lee when he was in a different band before love? Maybe that's why you can't really find that anything. Yeah, I'm not yeah, sure if he did any yeah, recording with him. That sounds like it might yeah. be right. Yeah, grass the grassroots yeah, or something yeah. like that. Yeah. So, you know, and he was a charismatic fellow and uh and good looking guy. 
And, you know, as Faye would have it, also had had this chapter in his life with uh, Kenneth Anger, where Kenneth Anger had seen him playing in a different band, uh, I think probably the front man of some band. And and Anger was, this is another whole long story, <laughs> but uh, Anger for his most of his life, really, since the teenager had been immersed in the occult and immersed in uh, particularly in Aleister Crowley, Alistair Crowley, I think is how you pronounce it, actually. But uh, he was looking to make a film about Lucifer. And this would have been in the, I think, probably 1966 or something like that in San Francisco. And Beausoleil was there. And Anger happened to see him in this in this concert and and approached him and, and you know, got Bobby Beausoleil to agree to play the role of Lucifer in this film that turned out to be uh, a, a kind of an endless uh, Sisyphean climb to try to get this film to actually come together. Bosley lived with anger for a while, um, and then they had a falling out. And I think Bosley ran off with the, the film footage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although I think he disputes that. But uh, anyway, uh, anger's next choice for for Lucifer. He somehow managed to get to London and get involved with uh, the Circle of the Rolling Stones who at that time were themselves very interested in, in Aleister Crowley and, and uh, this kind of like flirting with satanic uh, uh, symbolism and imagery that, well, the songs uh, Sympathy for the Devil, of course, is the first thing that would come to mind. Uh, so he was, you know, he was, that was a, it was a very fashionable thing at that moment to be uh, immersed in Aleister Crowley. That was, that was, you know, it didn't get much cooler than that at that particular <laughs> nanosecond right. in time really but but uh so he, he he managed to get to meet the stones and can and become friends with them and and then jagger was going to be lucifer and that also didn't work out very well but what what ended up happening is he he did get enough footage of jagger and of Beausoleil, uh each of them playing lucifer to uh cobble together this short film called invocation of my demon brother Instead of the one he was trying to make, which was called Lucifer Rising, which years later, actually with Jimmy Page's help, he did finish. Uh, but the the short film Invocation of My Demon Brother is still a, a, a very intense visual experience. I don't know if we've ever seen it. Several seen times. It? Yeah. Yeah. It, it's yeah. like this erotic imagery and there's parts where all of the different images and faces kind of conflate into one. And I watched it again over and over and over again in the last week to prepare for our talk. And it it just struck me how perfect all of the parts of your novel come together. And that film is the connective tissue. It just, everything is right there in that film that's in the novel. And yeah, so yeah. I've, I've seen all of, of, Anger's films before, well, starting with Fireworks and uh, Inauguration of the Pleasure Dome, Scorpio Mm. Rising, um, Lucifer Rising later, and Invocation of My Demon Brother. So, yeah, I I like his stuff. But, you know, I always think of his films as like an acid trip. And I've I've never dropped acid, but I don't have to because I've seen Kenneth Anger's films. So I already know what that's like. But, um. 
Yeah. I, well, and he was he was you know making some of those films before there was. Acid, I know. You know? I mean, fireworks was in he the forties. I'm sure he did did plenty of it later in life, but <laughs> but he didn't have to do it. You know, uh, inauguration of the Pleasure Dome is an incredible visually yeah. incredible movie that looks like he's had to have a billion dollar budget right. to make this thing and he made it all with a you know a couple of friends over the weekend with a little handheld mm-hmm. camera it's, it's just unbelievable And one of the interesting things about his films is there's there's no dialogue. Yeah. It's it's just this kind of they're mood pieces. They're the images are much more important than any kind of dialogue or plot line would be. Yeah. And you know, in, in a way that reminds me of your book, we already know what's going to happen mm-hmm. because it's based on real events. So what really matters is is how you create that tension, how you piece things together, and how you breathe new life into something that we already know. So that in that respect, it kind of reminds me of his films. Color's really important in his films. Color's really important in your novel. Yeah. I mean, the color green immediately comes to mind with regard to your novel. So there's some some overlap there in, in terms of or there's some some symmetry, I should say, between your novel and, and his work and the way he works. Yeah, I mean, I think I said earlier that I was kind of trying to capture the the sound of the Rolling Stones music in my, in mm-hmm. my prose. But I think the anger films also were very much something I was consciously trying to dial in you know to just that that energy because it's fair you know that i think that a certain kind of person who's maybe more uh cynical or something than i am looks at those films and thinks they're kind of campy or kitschy or something uh mm. but i don't i mean i can they are in places on purpose you know but but when they're trying to be spooky and sinister i think they really are and and that's not an easy effect to achieve especially with a shoestring budget Um, yeah and so in the same way i think when i was writing this book i i I was constantly thinking well you know you're you're talking about rock and roll and satanism and the manson murders and altamont uh if 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 i just throw those words out to some stranger if they know what they even mean, uh, they're going to picture mm-hmm. a kind of, I think, a kind of schlocky book, a book, a book that's kind of like a tabloid sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wanted to not have it come across that way. I wanted it to, I wanted it to be serious, you know, kind of, uh, yeah, kind of super serious. Because uh, I think it, it was. Serious. I mean, I, I think it was. You know, it, certainly uh, some of the consequences were and. and I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's a strange thing to talk about rock and roll as being serious, but I also think that if, if you make a record that's as good as those records are, then it's still that good uh, 50 years later. There's something very serious about that, you know? Yeah. Well, you have said that Anger used the occult in his films in the way Yeats used the occult in his poetry. Yeah. What did you mean by that? Uh, well, they were both very immersed in the occult and and yeats mm-hmm. uh all of his poetry makes direct references to these these kinds of symbols and and 
metaphors that you'll find in the occult. And he eventually even created his own occult system. So when you get to a poem like The Second Coming, which is his most famous poem, you know, you have this this image mm-hmm. of the Sphinx in the desert and and uh, mm-hmm. uh, these uh, desert birds swirling around it. And all of these things had had very specific meanings for, for Yeats. And it doesn't really matter if the reader doesn't know precisely what those meanings are, because the, the reader's going to get it anyway, kind of just through the the imagery and the way that a tarot card works or mm-hmm. something like that. And uh, Anger's films are the same way. I think they're loaded with, with uh, very specific and direct references to things in the books of Aleister Crowley. Uh, but it does, it, 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 I don't, I tried to read, I tried to read as much Alistair Crowley as I could for that book to do the research, but it it is not for me. It's I found it incredibly dull. <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't get through. It was it was dull. I mean, I, I, the last thing I expected from that was that it would be boring. That's, wow. that's, that's, that's what it was like. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's interesting. You never mention Crowley in the book, huh. in, in Sway, but there's a reference to Crowley that's pretty clear, even though it's not overt. And it's in the first chapter on Kenneth Anger. Mm-hmm. And when a young Kenneth buys a rare book called The Sephiroth. Okay. And it, that's in a downtown LA store. And this man at the counter tells him not to waste his money, that that author was a drug addict and a famous Satanist. So you know immediately who he's talking about. <laughs> but okay, so that book is not actually a real book. Right. But the way you describe it, it sounds a lot like the Book of the Law by Crowley. Yeah. So I'm wondering, is the reason why you made up a book rather than just referencing the Book of the Law? Because it wasn't in the public domain at the time you were writing it and you'd have to deal with copyright and all that getting, getting permission. Um, I don't think so. I think it was more that I, I, I had had a hard time, you know, penetrating Aleister Crowley's writing, but mm, I needed okay. it in there. And one of the, yeah. I mean, it wasn't that I found him completely uninteresting. I did. I, I found lots of things interesting about him, but mm-hmm. one of the things that I, that I noted cause I'm Jewish was that uh, a lot of his thinking uh and all occult thinking uh has roots in the kabbalah and mm-hmm. the sephirot is from the kabbalah that's the the tree of life in the kabbalah and so uh it it was a way to you know i think there's a little bit of a parody of alistair crowley in that in the that part of the book where there's a little excerpt from yeah. the sephirot that i made yeah. up um but I, I, I happen to that is something that I happen to be very interested in is, is the Jewish mystical uh, tradition, which is which is foundational to so many other things, uh, including the stuff that Gates was doing. Yeah. Okay. Well, now that's interesting. I didn't know that you were Jewish. So, what do you do with all of kind of the the Nazi symbolism in some of Kenneth Anger's films, particularly Scorpio Rising and Invocation of My Demon Brother. They're, they're flashes of the swastika in both of those films. Mm-hmm. What do you make of that? It's interesting because I, I, I came to that uh, as someone who had been really immersed in punk rock when I was a kid. And so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was used to thinking of the swastika as a symbol of evil, uh, the anti-Semitic 
obvious anti-Semitic uh, statement it makes wasn't yeah. something that bothered me at the time, uh, mm. which is a bit strange. I mean, I, 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 it's in our moment right now, I think it's strange to say that, but I don't think it was that strange to say it back then. Uh, it, it, I, you know, Sid Vicious was not a, an anti-Semite. He, he was, a, he was, a uh, when he wore a swastika, he was doing, uh, he, he was, uh, well, he was probably out of his mind, actually, with drugs at that point. <laughs> but, yeah. but, the, but the anger's use of it as well. I mean, I, you know, anger definitely has this sort of fascist streak in him. Uh, there's no question about it. He's writing about evil. So a, another, another, uh, one of the most important figures for me who also has some relation to Crowley is, is William Blake and William Blake. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe the epigraph to sway comes from William Blake. Energy is eternal to light. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Blake was, was very interested in, in the satanic and the, and the evil and the wrong. I mean, mm-hmm. and this was a guy with a, a very deep moral uh, nature. Yeah. Uh, but he felt like you couldn't tell just that part of the story. You had to, you had to, if you were going to uh, get to the root of the matter, you needed to have, you needed to go in and, and see what the swastika invoked. Uh, mm. And I, I, I think that's what, I mean, I think that movie Scorpio rising, which is where you see the swastika is an incredible movie. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah. It's not, a, it's not nice, you know, it, it, but it's, it's Wow. <laughs> you do such a great job of kind of getting that cadence and that voice of, of Crowley in that excerpt from the Seroth, mm-hmm. Sephiroth, oh, I was going to mispronounce mm-hmm. that, in that in that part of the book. And you use this phrase, thy will be done, which kind of reminds yeah. me of do what thou wilt, which is from the book of the law by Crowley. And that was actually on Kenneth Anger's San Francisco front door. So yeah. there's there's the parallel works and it doesn't it doesn't matter that you're not actually using him. I, I think you probably have more freedom not using him in the story. But OK, so I think it's important to separate the Christian idea of Lucifer from the mythological Lucifer. Like who is right. Lucifer for Kenneth Anger? That's a that's the heart of the yeah. matter. I think that question uh I think that it was, you know, I think Kenneth Anger comes to the, all of this stuff as a as a person born in a certain time and place, which is, uh, you know, gro- coming of age pre World War II in in the United States as a gay man, mm-hmm. and everything about your nature is is is, you know, described as evil by the the culture that you're living in, and so Lucifer for him becomes. Uh, a sort of uh, empowering figure of, of uh, the light yeah. bearer, someone who uh, is called evil, but is in fact a, a beautiful young man mm-hmm. uh, who comes with with fire and flame and, and light uh, to shake things up. Actually, probably to uh, not only disrupt the, the, the culture, but to, to totally revolutionize yeah. it, uh, which means tearing it down and replacing it with something else. And so I think that that, uh, that's certainly a spirit I can identify with. I still feel that way. Yeah. Uh, uh, And, and, you know, the, if you're of that mindset, then what your then your view of the Christian Lucifer is that this is, uh, 
this is the sort of specter of of the real Lucifer that there's Lair Lucifer is uh, is this sort of judgmental mm-hmm. uh, projection of all of their fears and blocked desires and and uh, you know uh, and that William Blake is also exactly in that camp. I mean, it, it, his his Satan is is actually the the creator of dogmatic laws and rules. Uh, his Satan is the hypocritical priest who uh, tells children to, you know, uh, stop playing and, and sit down in the pew and in the cold church and pray to God. Um, that's Satan for him. Whereas, uh, you know, God is, is being outside the church and, uh, and, and, uh, having a sensual life, uh, you know, uh, whether that's being a child or, or sexually or whatever it is. But uh, yeah, so that, that is, that's where anger was coming from. And that's what he was trying to present in his movie, Lucifer rising. And, and I think does in the final movie, but what's interesting is that just as the sort of sixties project or the, the kind of counterculture project started out with these i think optimistic aims and very uh, idealistic and admirable aims somehow it crashed and, and burned and corroded and, and became something that gave us you know the manson murders yeah. and the altamont uh and anger's film invocation of my demon brother which is almost kind of a way station to lucifer rising is what captures that moment where the ideal uh is is just turned into chaos yeah. and and uh and uh that that satanic energy which is can be so life-affirming and important can also be super you know mm-hmm. dangerous but i think that's one of the um, ideas you play around with in the novel is that kind of negation of the separation between good and evil as binary terms or you know there, mm-hmm. th- there's an in-between that connects them and lucifer as a an idea is sort of amoral and and you you play around with that idea in the book a lot i mean the the narrator is non-judgmental so you know he he treats all of these characters then the narrator treats all of these characters without judgment and in in that respect there's he's kind of got sympathy for the devil there for each one of those each one of those characters And it's interesting that Bobby Beausoleil's name means beautiful son. So there's that kind of correlation yeah. too. But kind of um, on a different note, I really love the cover of this novel. And I mean, the picture, I know people can't see this, but it's its a picture of the Rolling Stones from, I think, 1967 or 1966. Can't, yes, 1967. Yeah. Either, yeah. And Brian Jones is still with the band. So that kind of brings me to the discussion of the Rolling Stones. The novel focuses a lot on the love triangle between Brian Jones, Anita Palenberg, and Keith Richards. So what was going on with those three, and how did that love triangle affect the Stones as a band? So that was kind of one of the reasons to do this as a novel, I think, was was to try to come to some through imagining it try to come 
to some deeper understanding of the psychological dynamic that was going on there and how it affected the band. Because, you know, I think there's so many different factors. So the love triangle is that Nina Pallenberg is Brian Jones's girlfriend, and and they're both these uh, beautiful, glamorous people who also look quite a bit alike. So there's this kind of uh, uh, fabulous twin element going on with them. Um, they're both so gorgeous that you know everybody would be attracted to them. Um, but he just can't. He can't get his shit together and and, <laughs> yeah. and they sort of come together just as his role in the band is diminishing mm-hmm. because of his uh mostly because of his drinking and his 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 drug use uh, but also i think because it just became a different thing it became a a, a band that was about creating original songs mm-hmm. writing their own songs uh and while he could contribute to that and did all this wonderful stuff with with instrumentation the core of it became uh mick and keith and it was brian's band originally he went from being the leader to being sort of a side man and i think that was really devastating to his ego and these are all you know we have to remember these are kids they're in their 20s they're Mm -hmm. really young uh and they're they're swept up into this chaotic thing of being famous all of a sudden. And then uh, he's with Anita Pallenberg, but he's not going to be able to keep her. And, uh, and they're all together all the time. They're all hanging out together all the time. And uh, Keith Richards ends up with Anita. Uh, And those two guitar players were, you know, that was a big part of the stone sound was the, the weaving that Nick, uh, that Keith and Brian did with their two guitars. And so there's a, there's a, you know, a very concrete disruption then of the band's chemistry when you've got this love triangle going yeah. on and also this power dynamic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it leads, you know, I, I, you can't really say it's got cause and effect thing, but I think the fact that Brian Jones dies not long after this, uh, you connect the dots, right? And and uh, they must have felt, if not responsible for that, they certainly must have felt some guilt about it, I have to imagine. Uh, and, but at the same time that that's happening, <laughs> at the same time as their friend and cohort, co- colleague is is falling apart, they're also rising to this other level of, of greatness and the music is the best it's ever been. And not coincidentally, I think that's all tied up with this, with this satanic uh, ethos, this, uh, this uh, we're bad uh, and it, and, and we're going to sort of dial into that energy and it gave them this glamour that was unprecedented. I mean, they had that before, but but this really was the flowering of it. And uh, it's it is like what we were talking about before. I think this thing that is it, it both, I think, extremely beautiful and and dark, and 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 uh, the thing that that kills Brian Jones is in, in a weird way is the thing that empowers Mick and Keith. Uh, you know. You know, it's interesting. Brian died on July 3rd, 1969. And exactly two years later, Jim Morrison died that very same day. 
I wow. don't know why just yeah, a little bit of trivia there. I didn't know um, that on the same time. Yeah. So as as we've already talked about, Kenneth Anger was at the, the Stones Hyde Park concert. Mm-hmm. which turned into kind of a celebration of the life of Brian Jones, even though the, the concert was already scheduled before he died, but that's what it turned into. So yeah. he filmed the concert and that footage showed up in Invocation of My Demon Brother. And you've got these these little flashes of Anita and Marianne and of course, Mick and Keith. And you get flashes of the Hells Angels because the the London branch of the Hells Angels was, was uh, acting as security. And that film kind of becomes like a foreshadowing of of what would happen later with Altamont because you see all those same players there. And it was the Hells Angels, of course, that committed the murder at Altamont of the fan. So it's that film, it came out right before Altamont, I think. I think it was yeah. released in October and Altamont was in December. Yeah. So that, that must have been really eerie to watch that after Altamont. Uh, so that was, you know, there again, was one of the things I was trying to get underneath in the book, which is, you know, how, how does something like that happen? I mean, I, I'm not a, I'm, I'm basically a rational thinking person. And, and so when you have something like that, that is so uncanny uh, and, also, when you have these people who are deliberately playing around with with the diabolical and the satanic, and then you have these uncanny coincidences where the 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 film is a you know now is an obvious uh, prequel to Altamont. You know, you, yeah. it wasn't it couldn't have been meant that way, but it. it uh, but on the other hand, you feel it in the in the way the movie's put together and the way that it, it and the energy that it's invoking. Right. Uh, it's a kind of a spell. And so the result of the spell, uh, not that he was trying to cast a spell that would create Altamont, but the, but the, the energy of the movie again, which I think is a serious energy is this, this mm-hmm. uh, it's not schlock. It's not, it's not uh tabloid nonsense. It, it's something deeper than that, I think. And so, uh, Kenneth Anger had his finger on the pulse, I guess he could say. It's just saying, I guess you know. he did, yeah. So how difficult was it to write about these people in a fictional setting? Because we know them so well, and you did it so brilliantly. The dialogue is perfect. You can easily imagine it coming out of, of everybody's mouth. So what did you do to research this or just how difficult was it to create that dialogue first of all and then what kind of research did you do for the book the research was was honestly was pretty fun i just read everything i could get my hands on about these people mm-hmm. um and some of it's decent and some of it's not you know some i mean in terms of the quality of the the, the writing or the thinking that's in those books uh but all of them even if you read every single one of them, um, you're left with with room to work. You're left with gaps. Mostly, the gaps are, are private moments where the you know nobody could have known what A said to B. You know, which sure. enables you as a fiction writer, of course, to to uh, to go in and imagine what the conversation might have sounded like. And then it's and then it's uh, you know using writerly whatever craft i guess to uh to try to 
develop what the voices would sound like uh, and get them to talk with a certain amount of flow. That wasn't easy. That was a hard. I think the dialogue was probably one of the harder, harder parts of the book. And I would think the hardest part would be to write for Charlie Manson because mm. he, he speaks in such a kind of a biblical way. He does. There, there's there's a, you know, the, the train of thought. <laughs> you have to follow the train of thought. And I, I OK, backstory. I've just been fascinated by that since my Sunday school teacher told me about the Manson murders when I was, I think, in seventh grade. And yeah, that was a hell of a place to find out about the Manson murders. <laughs> um, but I'm the youngest of four in my family by 10 years. And my family was driving cross country to California. My father had a conference or something. And my mother was six months pregnant with me. And they got to L.A. in August 1969. So and they were it it just so happened to be driving the exact make, model and color of the car that Stephen Parent was driving when he went to the Tate house and was and was the first victim that night there. So there are all these kind of freaky similarities there that I've just always been fascinated by it. So. Wow. When I first when I read the first chapter and that that features Charlie Manson and Bobby Beausoleil, mm. I was paying close attention to the dialogue in particular. And you nailed it. I could so easily hear Charlie saying everything that you had him say. And I was immediately impressed. I knew that after I read that chapter, I'm sure he's got everything else right, because if you could nail that. Then the other stuff, the other dialogue would not be as hard as that. What do you want to call me a murderer for? I've never killed anyone. I don't need to kill anyone. I think it in the spiritual world is where I live. I exist in places you never even dreamed of. I do remember the Manson chapter. That first chapter was uh, a, one of the great writing experiences of my life because I just it came to me and I just was in the zone. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had been reading a lot of his speech. Yeah. And Manston was, uh, in many ways, very brilliant uh, in a in a terrifying way. I mean, in a way that, like, he's he's really really right out of a Flannery O'Connor story in a mm-hmm. lot of ways. And he did have the Bible at his fingertips because of his his upbringing, and and so he would speak in these parables, often very enigmatically. They have some interesting resonances with William Blake and the marriage of heaven. And yeah. Uh, and I just, and I think that when I think back on it, I th- there's that Joyce Carol Oates story, where are you going? Where have you been? That famous yes. story mm-hmm. where the whole uh, challenge as the writer is to, that story has this guy, Arnold friend, who's this evil d- devil, uh, James Deany kind of guy with, with with a kind of like a bad foot or something, and who, he wants to seduce this girl and get her to come out of the house, and that's all that the story does. I mean, he he's just talking to her, and why would she do it? Why would she go leave the house? What you know? What what does he have to say to her to walk out of that house and go away with him? And we presume to something really terrible is going to happen to her. We don't see it in the story, but anyway, that was the kind of uh, dynamic that I wanted to work with in that scene. It was, it was 
when Charles Manson gets Bobby Boltzoy under his sway, you know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, what are you going to say to someone who's uh, not an idiot, who is not uh, drugged out and, and uh, you know, some acid freak who, who has no sense of reality? What are you going to say to someone who's got a brain to get them to do this thing that you want them to do? You're going to have to be very smart and very, uh, you know, uh, and very subtle and devious. The, the 60s ended in an explosion that ended the, the decade of peace and love ended with the Manson murders. And well, Joan Didion said, well, she wrote in her essay, The White Album, many people I know in Los Angeles believe that the 60s ended abruptly on August 9, 1969, ended at the exact moment when word of the murders on Cielo Drive traveled like brush fire through the community. And in a sense, this is true. The tension broke that day. The paranoia was fulfilled. Do you think that's true, or do you think the '60s ended more with Altamont? That's the. I mean, they're sort of both of them are iconic now in terms of the, you know, and and they're both at, you know, one is in August, the other is in mm-hmm. December. Um, I I love Joan Didion, so I'm gonna mm-hmm. I'm gonna defer to her for sure. Uh, I, I think that. One of the interesting things about the White Album and that whole book uh, is how she's d- describing the time we live in right now uh, in so many ways. Uh, she's certainly saying things in there that forecast uh, Trump. And I think Trump is, is in a weird way, a, a, a a kind of product of the sixties. I mean, I, I think that the, that generation is still fighting the same battles. They're still fighting over Vietnam in a way. Her vision of California in the 1960s in that book is just, it, it, it contains so many of the, the, uh, the cultural dynamics that we're seeing. Uh, we still see today. I mean, I, I, I she's, she's really onto it. Saying, I mean, it's really kind of remarkable. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show and best of luck with your new novel. I can't wait to read it. Thank you. So keep up with Zachary at his website, ZacharyLazar.com, where you can order all his books, including Sway. Where else can we find you? Uh, I'm on Facebook. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, how do we how do we find you on Facebook? Oh, just my name. Just just your yeah, name. Yeah, okay. Pretty easy. Are you on Twitter or Instagram or anything like that? Uh, I am, but I never use it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. And we'll take another short break. Then we'll be joined by journalist, playwright, editor, and musician, Tony Sokol, who'll talk about the Stones involvement in Invocation of My Demon Brother and the Occult. Back in a moment. This is Tony Sokol, and you're listening to Rock Is Lit. We're back. 
Hey folks, Stephen Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. With more Rock is Lit, for this segment, we're joined by Tony Sokol. Tony is the culture editor at Den of Geek and the TV editor at Entertainment Voice and was senior writer at K-Pop Stars, best known for writing and producing New York City's Vampire Theater and the rock opera Assassination, We Killed JFK. Tony was an underground mainstay in Manhattan for over 30 years and a lifelong music fanatic, lunatic more like it. He's defended the Beatles' Revolution 9 and demanded Peter Jackson release the 18-hour cut of Get Back. Tony has interviewed Justin Hayward of the Moody Blues, Roger Glover of Deep Purple, Susie Quattro, Josie Cotton, Joe Satriani, Tracy Guns, members of the police, NXS, Oingo Boingo, and anyone else who squeezes notes through their fingers, mouths, or throats. Tony, it is a pleasure to have you on Rock is Lit. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, Tony, I loved your article in Den of Geek, The Occult Influences of Sympathy for the Devil, and that is directly related to the topic of this episode. Zachary Lazar's rock novel Sway uses the 1969 Kenneth Anger film Invocation of My Demon Brother to connect the stones with not only Anger, but also the Manson family by way of actor-musician Bobby Beausoleil. Okay, and it's weird uh, because I was just... As you were saying that, swinging London back then was very small. It was a few blocks, really. And the Process Church of Final Judgment was in that area. Uh, Pink Floyd mm-hmm. were doing their psychedelic freakout shows on their own. Yeah. And Anger met the Stones through um, Robert Frazier, the gallery owner that uh, introduced John and Yoko. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was a very small place. And... Um, it must have been really a lot yep. of fun. Oh, gosh, I can imagine Carnaby Street and, and all all that was going on in that area. So before we talk about the film and the Stones' involvement in that film in particular, can you just sort of trace the history of their interest in the occult? I mean, was this just fashion? Because I know every rock star in the late 60s on through the 70s, you know, had a Woody for Aleister Crowley. <laughs> so I mean, was it just fashion or were they cultivating some kind of bad boy image or was it legit interest or a little bit of all of it? Okay. They were more influenced by Anita Pallenberg as mm. far as this went. Uh, mm-hmm. She actually was out front. She was, a, she was, you know, the, she was the band witch, you know, um, they used to, according to when I was doing that article, I um, I, I read a lot of books, um, and I think Marianne Faithful said that they used to, you know, they weren't very interested in Kenneth Anger's Crowley and, you know, um, affinities and and mm-hmm. Crowley and Crowley and thought is really pretty. It, it is very misogynist, you know, pretty yes. much, and it would be. You know, um, the Beatles put Crowley on Sergeant Pepper. On the Peppers, cover of Sergeant Pepper, mm-hmm. right? And uh, it was, and it was Paul that suggested that. 
and the Stone Satanic Majesty flipped that the cover. Uh, so they, I don't think that they were specifically into occultism. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that Anita was, Anita Pallenberg was. I believe that they thought it was a very cool image. And, and Mick said, you know, I didn't spend my, you know, it was one song on an album. I didn't, you know, I didn't dedicate my career to it, you know. But he does, they do go back to it in Goat's Head Soup, Dancing mm-hmm. with Mr. D. No, I mean, that, that's interesting that, that Mick would say that because it is more than just one song. Surely they knew what they were playing around with. Rock and roll is the devil's music. <laughs> and so I hear. The devil's got a good backbeat. Really. Okay, well, tell me this then. If, okay, who is Mick? What devil is Mick singing about in Sympathy for the Devil? Who uh, is this devil? He got it from a book. Um, the Master of Margarita. Yes, thank you very much, mm-hmm. which is actually a satire. You know, so, and um, Mick, uh, he, I think he was given the book by Marianne Faithful, I believe, and mm-hmm. um he just thought it was interesting, you know, he thought it was fascinating. When he wrote the song, and this is actually, when I think about this song, and I think about the whole story about Sympathy of the Devil, for the Devil, um, I think of, Mick is only 24 years old at the time. He writes this really cool song. He drives around and it, uh, from one member to the other. He has, he's got a, a, an acoustic guitar in his back seat, and he'll play this really cool song for anybody that he passes. <laughs> and I'm thinking, that is so rock and roll. Yeah. You know, that is exactly what any 24-year-old, you know, musician would be like, <laughs> you know. And every single one of the stones, remember him knocking on their door with this really cool song. So it, he was just, I don't think he was conjuring demons. Yeah. I don't I don't think that he was into that. Um, he's always said he wasn't. But mm-hmm. anger saw something in him. Mm-hmm. And... He did do synthesizer work on um... Invocation of My Demon Brother. Yeah, so I, I think Anger wanted to cast him as Lucifer in that film. So how did he go from from that to just doing the soundtrack? Yeah, Anger wanted to create visually, uh, like visually incantation, and he wanted to create a spell. I don't know exactly how it was that he was asked to do specifically how it went from one to the other because he he had he saw both. Keith and um, Mick and Keith in parts. Mick wanted to be Lucifer. It was yeah, it was Mick was Lucifer. Keith was Beelzebub. But the but the the film um, that he initially wanted to shoot it didn't go the way he wanted. But uh, anger. So as but as far as how he got Mick to do, he did it all on synthesizer. I, I don't I don't know if I've heard his version. I remember I remember listening to it or finding it on YouTube. Two diff- I have, there's like three different versions of it. I have I have two of them. I'm pretty sure I've heard it. And I actually like I like the film. Um, mm-hmm. I like anger. Me too. I like anger's I like mm-hmm. anger's work. He was the first. He really started um, independent film. He started um, uh, gay gay cinema. Really, mm-hmm. he really mm-hmm. began that. Um, he I believe it was like the, some of the first rock videos there there had been like the the jazz shorts and things like that you know and Betty Boop had her fun 
<laughs> right. So what did what did Mick and Keith really think of Kenneth Anger when when that collaboration was over? Because it, when it was over, it was just sort of over their relationship. Well, um, as I said, um, they didn't take the whole Crowley thing very seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was he was probably you know although I read somewhere that he is also he may because I'm not sure about this source. I have to, uh, he may be the inspiration to Ruby Tuesday. Kenneth Anger? Yes. Wow. That is what I, I, I read that somewhere, but I, have, I only found that out while I was doing the research for this, and I have not yet found another source for it. No one knows. She comes and goes. Keith had some sort of a, uh, he had a crystal, he had a ruby crystal that supposedly had, it gave, um, if you were doing just the right amount of drugs, it gave you a hallucinogenic um, experience. Okay. And I'm sure it was fun to experiment with exactly the right chemistry, which came up with, you know. Yeah. Ruby Tuesday. All right. So I think there were, so they were friends for a while, you know. Um, I also believe that a lot of the whole back and forth, um, the, the, um, occult thing, had to do with the back and forth of the Beatles and the Stones in general. Mm. Like the Beatles put out, I want to hold, uh, they put out, uh, yeah, they put out, I want to hold your hand. And the Stones, you know, they used to kiss you on the lips, but it's all over now. <laughs> you know, or, you know, you know, or, yeah, and Lennon, but, but Lennon always said that please please me was about oral sex. I think I'm down is about erectile dysfunction. And oh. I really want to talk about it. I'll get you, I'll get you in the end. I'll tell yeah, you. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Uh, so they were more artful and they were just as, as, you know, they were just as much pushing the boundaries mm-hmm. of it. So the, but the, and as we pointed out in the beginning, the, the Beatles have Crowley on the cover. Mm-hmm. The Stones have the Beatles on their cover, you know. Thanks for coming on Rock is Lit, Tony. You can read his article, The Occult Influences of Sympathy for the Devil, online in Den of Geek. I'll leave a link in the show description. Follow Tony on Twitter at T Sokol. Hang on to your seat, because coming up next is Zena Shrek, who will share her memories of her godfather, Kenneth Anger, and some of his films featured in Sway. We're back with more Rock is Lit. I'm very excited to welcome my next guest to the podcast. Zena Schreck, formerly LeVay, is an interdisciplinary visual and musical artist based in Berlin, Germany. Raised within the Church of Satan, she came to international prominence early in life as the organization's high priestess and first public spokesperson defending the church in the 1980s during the infamous media-fueled U.S. satanic panic. She resigned her position in 1990, severed ties with her father, Anton LaVey, and renounced Satanism and Western occultism to pursue her own religious path, which led to her becoming a practitioner and lineage holder of Tibetan Tantric Buddhism. Zena is also the goddaughter of Kenneth Anger, 
so she's in a unique position to share her memories of anger and her insight into some of his iconic films featured in the novel Sway. Zena, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Christy. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> I'm, I'm thrilled you're here. Thank you. You have had quite a life. Before we go back in time, I'm really interested in what you're up to now, because I, I know that you're working on something. And I also know you live cool. in Germany. So mm -hmm. you're participating in a documentary that's being filmed in Berlin. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes, that sounds like an interesting project, and I'm not going to tell too much okay. about it. But for the reason being, I'll tell you a little bit about it, but the director and I both were discussing our process, our creative process, and how we both are a little bit hesitant about talking about projects before they're, before they're actually really almost ready to be presented mm -hmm. um, in terms of how that affects the ultimate outcome and your creative process and where things can unexpectedly lead that maybe you didn't anticipate at the beginning. Right. So what I can tell you is uh, this is a documentary. It's going to be a, um, uh, a rather artistically made documentary about F.W. Murnau, the director, and how the, the director of the documentary discovered me was because of my latest sound art release, Bring Me the Head of F.W. Murnau. Wow. So this is my, yeah, this is my very first actually entirely solo album that I've done mm. that I did entirely by myself. So it's uh, a late in life debut as a solo artist um, in, in, in a studio release, in a studio proper release. And um, he discovered me that way for the documentary. And so, yeah, last Friday we were out at the Stansdorf Friedhof, of all Friedhof, that's the Forest Cemetery mm. out here in Berlin, where Murnau is interred with his two brothers. And the reason why we were doing a um, interview there is because in 2015, in July of 2015, the director's head had been stolen. Oh, good grief! And and because there were drops of wax left on one of the caskets. It was uh, speculated, but not proven, but speculated that whoever did the deed was maybe um, an occultist mm -hmm. or had some sort of occult leanings. Um, me personally, I tend to think that it could be, you know, we shouldn't speculate. It could be any, could be it for any reason right. that there was wax there. So anyhow... Um, the whole documentary will be kind of going on a journey about F.W. Murnau, I think, generally, but we don't know yet where that will lead. And I'm pretty interested in seeing what... The, the director's name is Alex Bat Batum. Okay. And um, he's got a history of doing a variety of different visual arts and music, uh, music videos mm -hmm. and different kinds of things like that. So I'm really interested in seeing what he's going to come up with and what he's going to discover and what will be revealed. It's not exactly going to be like a whodunit kind of thing. That's, yeah. not, the, that's not the intention behind the documentary. Uh -huh. But more than that, I don't want to say because it's his project. And I just was one of the interviewees so far. Well, we that makes perfect it. sense. 
it may lead to some other things, but so far, that's as far as I've gotten yet. (laughs) Okay. I won't pursue that, but it does sound absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Zena, I love this quote I found on your Facebook page. And here's the quote. Mm -hmm. If you have strength of character, you can use that as fuel to not only be a survivor, but to transcend simply being a survivor. Use an internal alchemy to turn something rotten and horrible into gold. And I get the feeling that this is hard-won wisdom. So to the extent you're comfortable, can you, can you tell me a little bit about your, your upbringing and experiences? Uh, yeah. Well, it's, it's funny because, as I mentioned just earlier today, I was talking with my half-sister, Carla. Mm-hmm. And she, um, she and I both, we still, you know, we're coming at our life's experience from very different angles from very different perspectives and yet we have a lot of overlap and we have a lot of shared common experiences but the reason being is she's a decade older than me Mm -hmm. so her you know her experience in the family started earlier she knew my father much younger in life before he had become what he's notorious for now Um, and then because she was older than me she left home at a normal age when when young adults leave home, but I was still very small. So we both had the experience of being kind of like only children and then having some overlap in between. Mm-hmm. So she, she and I were just talking today about um, all the things that we've had to deal with and, uh, you know, a lot of strife and a lot of threats and a lot of insanity, both from within the family and outside you know, lunatics and needing to deal with psychopaths. And, you know, whenever you have any kind of extreme religious, extreme religiosity of any type. Yes. Or or reaction thereto, you're going to get a lot of very uh, extreme types of people attracted to it. Yeah. So... Obviously, the fallout on both of us is going to be a lifelong issue that we both need to deal with. And she was saying to me sort of jokingly, because we were talking about other aspects of we, we, we now we have to talk about things that come up about the LaVey estate, which we are both the, the legal heirs to the LaVey estate. So mm. anything that needs to be decided upon mm-hmm his intellectual property, our father's intellectual property, or his right to publicity, or any use of his image or things like that, we, we need to discuss it and, and make decisions about that. Wow. So, um, but something else came up that she was talking about earlier in, in my life, that I'm, an ongoing issue, which I won't get into because it's too much of a digression. But anyway, the point being is she sort of jokingly said, you know, when I think about all the crap you've had to deal with and mm. me Zena has had to deal with and all the things that I've had to overcome she said I she said it's no surprise that you've become a Buddhist <laughs> <laughs> and she said and this is coming from someone who's still you know basically a Satanist okay. <laughs> and she said she said it's no surprise that you've become a Buddhist I I can certainly understand yeah. the need to you know, move to an entirely different country out of this country where she is still, yeah. where you are in the U.S., move out of the U.S., 
you know, become a Buddhist and entirely change my life around and rebuild myself. And, uh, you know, I had to thank her for that, for that understanding. And uh, I think for both of us, having become reunited after about a 20-year, you know, 20 years of not speaking with each other, we've, we've, uh, we've been able to kind of help each other heal a lot. And, um, and I think it's been very beneficial for both of us. And, and as it turns out, now we are in fairly regular contact, not only out of necessity, but because we've, we've, through both of our, you know, we're both much older now, and uh, through the decades of maturing since then, we've become pretty good friends now in the process of reuniting. Oh, that's yeah. fantastic. So that's nice. Yeah, but the quote that you, you uh, mentioned there, <laughs> about turning, you know, an inter- internal alchemy, turning something really rotten into gold. This is something that I've had to painstakingly work my way through, through decades. It's not an easy process, and it doesn't happen overnight. And you need patience, too. Well, well let me shift gears, okay. and let's talk about your memories of Kenneth Anger. Yeah. What are some of your best memories of him? He was your right. godfather. How, how Do you remember when you were first aware of him in your life? Uh, well, actually, he was a presence in my life going back so far that I don't have a memory of when he first appeared on the scene in my life. Mm-hmm. But I can tell you a funny anecdote about how he became my godfather, <laughs> because that, that oh, happened later. <laughs> um, that okay. happened around the time, let's see, the year would have been whenever the film The Godfather was released. 1972. Good time, yeah, because that was a good year, because that was when a lot was happening in Kenneth Anger's life. And he knew Francis Ford Coppola. I don't know if you know that. Um, And he was, uh, you know, sort of uh, in the San Francisco scene, filmmaker scene, he was kind of drifting out of the Zoetrope studios and drifting out and Mm -hmm. and, uh, had connections with uh, another producer called Tom Luddy, and there were a number of directors and producers that Ken knew in the San Francisco Bay Area. And um, when The Godfather came out, because of Ken having known people who worked on The Godfather, and, and uh, uh, I guess he sort of got it in his head that, <laughs> well, not not that Ken is at all like Marlon Brando or, or at all like that character, but he sort of got it in his head that he, he would really like to be a godfather. <laughs> and, and I remember <laughs> when he said it to my father, he said, if, and, and before I finish this anecdote, I want to give you a visual to have in mind when I'm discussing Ken. Okay. Because probably for me, a comparable a comparable way of visualizing him at that age, at that time, and in in the environment of my family, with my father and mother and the kinds of people that were around then. If you can imagine Blue mm-hmm. Velvet, you know, the film Blue Velvet? And oh, yes. You know the Dean Stockwell yes. character. In, in, okay. Yes. That is how I remember Kenneth Anger. And in relation to the Frank character, the Dennis Hopper character, oh, which doesn't look, doesn't look anything like my father, but he behaves in a same, yeah. similar kind of way that my father behaved in those Ooh. days. 
Um, okay. Very thuggish and kind of, you know, well, he had his issues. Suave, goddamn, you're one suave fucker. You want some beer? Of course, Frank. Darling. Darling, could you bring some glasses and we'll have a beer with Frank? Thank you. But um, the the Dean Stockwell character, after I saw Blue Velvet, and I saw it with a work colleague, uh, I was working at UCSF Medical Center in San Francisco and we, we after mm-hmm. work one day we decided oh, we'll just go see this new film Blue Velvet this is a, a digression from what I'm telling you about how I became <laughs> his goddaughter but anyway we went, we went to see okay. Blue Velvet and we came out of the after we saw it we came out of the theater at the, the cinema and she I said what would you think and I was sort of grinning because I thought it was I mean I liked the film a lot uh, but I was interested to see what she thought. And, and she said, my God, that was horrific. And I was like, really? And I said, I thought it was hilarious. It was just, I said, it was just like the way I grew up. These, these, the people, oh I said, God. these people are just like pe- the characters from my life. <laughs> so, and I was specifically wow. thinking Kenneth Anger because that Dean Stockwell character, his behavior just nailed my memories of how Kenneth Anger's behavior was around our household. Okay. So if you have a kind of visual of that performance, that would be a very accurate way of understanding my memories of, of Kenneth. All you have to do is okay. superimpose well, Kenneth's face over. Although <laughs> it, the way Dean Stockwell's expressions and his mannerisms, I'm not entirely sure that he didn't pattern that character after Kenneth even. Because David Lynch is inspired by Kenneth Anger's films, yeah. He has mentioned that, uh, which is nice, because not everybody who's been inspired by Kenneth Anger's films do acknowledge that. Um, So he's one of them who has. So now, to go back in time, with you having that visual image of the Dean Stockwell (laughs) character from Blue Velvet, um, you know, Kenneth was kind of dancing around the kitchen saying, stomping his foot kind of in a sassy way, saying, I want to be a godfather. I want to be a godfather. And my father said, well, then a godfather you shall be. And he, and I was, and he was, and my father said something like, and he was uh, um, parroting, you, you may know the scene in Kenneth's film, Invocation of My Demon Brother, where there's the scene where it says, Zap, mm-hmm. you're pregnant, that's witchcraft. You know that part? Okay, yeah, so yeah, my yeah. father said, Zap, you're a godfather. And that's like, that's how, <laughs> so it is done. That's, <laughs> and it was a totally yeah. spontaneous thing. And then he's like, yeah, you know, he's like shaking his little pitchfork. And yeah, yeah, I'm a godfather. That's I'm a amazing. God. But of course, it's an absurd thing because a godfather and a church of Satan, what sense does that make? And in, in, in what context and, <laughs> and what God? And it's rather, you know, it's rather illogical. But <laughs> But that's how it happened, and for, for all right, forevermore, you know, yeah, he was my godfather. And how did he think of that role once he got it? You know what? Did he... I actually think he took it more seriously than my father did. 
much rather just sort of, mm, my okay. father was just kind of a throwaway kind of off the cuff thing. But I think he actually <laughs> took it more seriously because he did kind of take me under his wing and he did, uh, you know, he shared a lot of things with me that were probably inappropriate for the various mm. ages that he did, you know, whether I was 10, 11, yeah. 15 or whatever, until adulthood. But he was quite open with me and shared a lot. But it didn't, it wasn't like, there wasn't, you got to remember this was the 70s. And things were weird in the 70s. And and being a young girl was, in the 70s was, it's you know, it's another world than in those days. Mm -hmm. So, um, although I have to say, I never felt, I never felt, I really enjoyed Ken. I really did uh, like his company. I really did like watching how he worked. I really did like being around him. And uh, I was never frightened of him. And he never put me in any compromising situations. However, Mm. I would like to add to that, though. I befriended the author... Spencer Kenza, who I don't know if you know who he is, he wrote he wrote a biography on Cameron Parsons. So Cameron Parsons was the wife of Jack Parsons. He, he was a rocket scientist, actually, for Jet, Propul- Jet Propulsion Lab. However, he was an occultist, and he was a follower of Aleister Crowley. And he, oh. he and L. Ron Hubbard uh, created a working together to manifest the Scarlet Woman, and the Scarlet mm. Woman manifested in the form of Cameron Parsons, and she became then a follower, follower of Aleister Crowley also, and as a result of that, Kenneth Anger and Cameron Parsons befriended each other through their mutual interest in Telema and, uh, you know, being a follower of Aleister Crowley. Anyhow, yeah. getting back to Spencer Kanza and how this connects is because um, I was working on a project with Spencer and in the process of discussing uh, Cameron Parsons and her daughter Crystal because Kenneth Anger had lived with Cameron in San Francisco um, for a while and they had a very close really close closely bonded relationship however Cameron's daughter uh, related to Spencer, uh, that sh- she used to be literally terrified of Kenneth. She was absolutely mm. terrified of his mood swings, of his erratic behavior, and of not knowing what to expect from him. And she said that he just utterly terrified. He just wow. utterly, utterly terrified her. And that's direct, uh, direct relating what Spencer said to me. Yeah. But mm. I had a very different experience. And I think possibly the reason contributing factor to that was in a way, and this is going to sound weird, I know, but in a way, when Kenneth would visit our house, you see, my parents were, although my parents had a really crazy lifestyle, compared to other people that Kenneth was hanging around uh, compared to the whole drug scene in San Francisco and the types of people yeah. that Kenneth knew, both in San Francisco and in London and in Los Angeles, 
Mm-hmm. My parents were very straight-laced by comparison. Mm-hmm. By comparison. Now, again, this is a mm-hmm. spectrum. So, so that's... Gotcha. Um, so it's a relative thing. Uh, but by comparison, Kenneth had a personality that was really, to say it was highs and lows, it would be an understatement. I mean, I'm sure he had bipolar you know, issues and ADHD and all of these mm. myriad neurological uh, components that contributed to his personality and behavior. But then there's also character and just other things that go into someone's personality. He was definitely a person of extremes. And he would go on these very high highs. Some of those were organic highs of just what his neurology was dictating. And some of those were... uh, you know, with the help of stimulants. So yes, he would go on these very high highs and he would, you know, do things that would probably create a lot of damage with people that he had, you know, repeated fallings out with. And um, then when he would kind of crash and he needed somewhere to be quiet and to be kind of left alone with understanding people, he'd come to our house and he'd just sometimes mm. either even show up without warning and just crash in in one of the spare rooms and um he see i remember him as being a pretty decent house guest in those days okay in those days however over time that apparently changed by the 90s um and, and that that's where I got some feedback from my half-sister Carla in her recollections, which are not so um, joyful as mine. <laughs> oh, boy. So, but, but to go back in time to the early 70s, when I'm talking about uh, when I spent time with him, for example, when he was uh, working on the American edition of Hollywood Babylon, he had, mm-hmm. uh, and and then there again, he would come and stay with us for some weeks at a time. Uh, he would bring this antique suitcase. He had this really oversized antique suitcase that he he kept like his traveling office. And he had all of mm. the clippings, all of the photos. And I'm talking about original photos that he used for Hollywood Babylon. He had um, printouts of the typesetting for the captions of the photos and he was cutting and pasting and doing this all by hand, spreading it out all over the the kitchen table in the daytime when my parents were sleeping or if my mother was out running errands or doing other things and they weren't using the kitchen. So he would use the kitchen, spread the soul out. You know, I was playing with friends and stuff. I would go out and and do my kids stuff. But when I'd come back and I'd see him still working and I, of course I'd sit and just kind of watch. It was interesting to me. And, um, and so he he would be methodically working on that, and he, he, he would be very quiet, actually, when he was working on, on things like that that were more introspective. And, uh, you know, then when dinner time would come around, he'd pack up all his stuff off the kitchen table, put it in his little suitcase, or it was rather a large suitcase, <laughs> and put it in, in the room where he was staying. And uh, he was very tidy in that way. Uh-huh. Um, and about the way he would stay in the guest room, I mean, he used to say, but I didn't believe it, but he used to say that he really never slept, that he was like a shark. He used to say, oh, oh, I don't need any 
blankets or pillows. I, I don't sleep. I just, just let me have a couch and that'll be fine because I'll just sit here and close my eyes a few minutes. And he said, I, I'm like a shark. I don't need sleep. Um, uh-huh. And I didn't necessarily believe him, but, but I did. I do remember going into what was then the red room where he was staying. And, um, and it was quite remarkable that the, that the couch, which we, d- we did give him sheets and a pillow for him to lay down on, but it was like there was never a mark on it. There was never the indentation that the head that wow. the head had rested on the pillow, unless he was just so, I mean, it's possible that he was just such a control freak that he, you know, he would lay down, but then immediately when he would get up, he'd already puff up the pillow and make it look like nobody had laid down on it. That is possible because he was kind of, you know, he did create his own persona of this kind of magical yeah. entity, for example, in some examples of how he created his own persona. Um, you know, he used to tell people that he was a Scorpio. He wanted to be a Scorpio, but he's not a Scorpio. Mm. He was born in February. So, uh, but okay. he wanted to be a Scorpio and he used to tell people he was a Scorpio. Um and that's, well, that's part of part of how he was shaping his magical persona. And yeah. another thing is, I don't know if you have ever seen his handwriting, his 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 script. His no, I don't. Well, he has so. very distri- very distinctive handwriting, and um, some people have commented on it, asked me about it, and I remember not just him. He used to like people to think that he was naturally left-handed. And I remember my mother saying, oh, he's not left-handed. He just forced himself to use his left hand. (laughs) And then I talked to him about it later in life when I was older and living in Los Angeles and would visit him at Samson DeVere's house where he lived in a flat. So Samson DeVere was one of the actors in Inauguration of the Pleasure Dome. And in fact, okay. in fact, inauguration of the Pleasure Dome was filmed in his property, in his house. So mm. uh, later in life, Kenneth moved into a flat in that property in Hollywood, in Los Angeles. And then I remember I used to go there frequently to, I would help Kenneth out if he needed uh, to be driven somewhere, if he because he didn't drive. So if he needed a lift somewhere, oh, okay. he... I don't know if he would have been capable of driving. He he had mm. issue he had issues with impulse control, <laughs> and so uh, I don't know okay. I don't know if his not driving was by choice or if he really wasn't able to learn how to drive or what it was. But he did not drive, so he would walk everywhere in Hollywood that he needed to do, or take the bus or take cabs. Or if he could get a lift. So if he needed a ride, I could give him a lift. And sometimes he'd need me to type uh, letters for him. In those days, there was Mm -hmm. no email, of course. And um, he was trying to get funding. I'm jumping back and forth in time through the 70s to the 80s. But um, in the 80s, when I I was living in Los Angeles at the same time he was living in Hollywood, um, he was trying to get funding to do a a film version, an updated version of Death Takes a Holiday. And so he was trying to get oh. funding for that. So he, he would uh, okay. ask me to write, type letters for him. He would dictate them to me, and I would just type as he was dictating and get the rough draft and then re redo the letter in proper format. 
after I got the gist of what he was wanting me to say to producers or whatever, getting, you know, raising the funds. However, anyhow, what I'm saying is I spent a lot of time in that flat and, um, and we got talking just about little incidental things along the way. And um, I did ask him about his handwriting once, because his signature, he was signing something. And he signed it with his left hand. And I asked him, are you really left-handed? And he said, I'm ambidextrous. And he said, I'm ambidextrous in every way. And he hated, oh. he hated labels. He hated okay. being shoved into any... Uh, shoved into any group of people, any uh-huh. any category, whether it was, uh, it didn't matter. He just, he, he always considered himself uh, a lone wolf and his own, his own mm. thing, his own entity. Mm-hmm. And whenever somebody would try to pitch, except for Crowley, that was his exception. He was a follower of Crowley. And there's where we differed because I was not. And yeah. I wasn't really interested in hearing anything about that. I don't, well, I don't a care. Misogynistic religion. Exactly. Very much so. And I agree. Yeah. I agree completely. And I never had any interest in it. And he never pushed it on me, thankfully. But he also knew mm-hmm. that I wasn't interested and that the things that he yeah. had about Crowley would not impress me and wasn't, wasn't anything that I found interesting. So, um, but that was the one thing that for some reason he did give total dedication to. And that was the exception. But in ter- terms of other things, he didn't want to be pigeonholed he didn't want to be labeled even in terms of his homosexuality he said i don't need those labels i'm whatever Mm -hmm. you know i'm i mean of course he was very but what kind of a homosexual was he he was a very old-fashioned kind of homosexual actually he was not Mm. a political he was not in fact he hated the politicizing of of anything and i agreed with that i'm he was a good influence on me in that way. I'm in total agreement with the politicizing of anything, whether it's spirituality, sexuality. Do I agree with that 100%. And so he okay. did not he did not buy into all that. Because he had, I do believe he had a very romantic relationship with Cameron Parsons, who was mm. a woman. But she, too, was very androgynous, and she, mm-hmm. too, was very ambiguous and not definable in her own way. So I think they had a, a kind of understanding with each other that was not your typical male-female relationship, but it worked for them. And, yeah. it, and, and it was, I do believe it was romantic. But you don't have to have a sexual relationship to have a romantic relationship. And, and anyway, who knows whether they did have sex or not, and who cares? Yeah. Because yeah. it was love, and that's more important. Love is more important than what someone does with their genitals, you know? Sure. Was, was he aware of... I, I'm, not so, I'm not so sure if it was going on in the 70s and 80s, if, if he was experiencing any accolades for his work. I know Cocteau praised him for fireworks. Yes, yeah. But, you know, like, because earlier in this episode, and I was talking to Zachary Lazar, the author of Sway, mm-hmm. and then I was talking to Tony Sokol, and we all three were saying how much we admired his work mm-hmm. and how, how much we really love his films. Mm-hmm. Was he feeling that coming from the public or the critics during I that don't- time? think as much as he would have liked and 
probably even objectively not yet, not yet. Mm. I do think he uh, maybe partly because of people that he did have direct interactions with, which he did burn a lot of bridges just based on his yeah, own, I gather. based on his own, as I said, impulse control and his own personality and his mercurial behavior. Um, uh, I think in the early, well, not early stages, let's say between the sixties and seventies where he was mature enough, he wasn't just a up and coming filmmaker he had established himself but there were only a handful of i think critics and and other filmmakers who would acknowledge uh that they were inspired or influenced by him or that gave him credit for actually creating a new art form um i think that came later i think that actually developed much later like maybe into the 90s but in the 70s, I mean, he was definitely revered in subcultures. In, in yeah. He had a, a niche following in subcultures and in alternative uh, media and alternative, you know, what, what would have been the precursors to fanzines and things like that. Um, right. that, was, that, was, that was pretty well established. But in terms of... Uh, uh, any kind of mainstream recognition? I don't think so, no. And and of yeah. course, we can't forget, too, that he was a heavy influencer of MTV and the, and the oh, MTV yes. video format. Yes. Because his use of pop music in conjunction with the, the very quick cuts of different mm -hmm. kinds of um, vintage clips along with yeah. original clips and very fast-paced quick cuts like that. Right. That was definitely a strong influence on the early days of MTV and then ultimately of music videos as we even know them today, continuing on to today. Agreed. Agreed. And he didn't use dialogue in his films. No, no. They were very evocative because there was no mm -hmm. dialogue. And, and I, um, I, I myself am very influenced in that way, too, that I, I tend to favor... Um, that my creations, I, I tend to favor not using so much dialogue, not using mm. so even my own vocals in my own musical compositions. I, I tend to use it minimally or maybe only as a sound rather than uh, a narrative or telling a story or singing a song in a conventional way. Um, mm -hmm. I use my vocals in a more kind of uh, maybe dreamlike way, I try. Mm -hmm. And that's definitely uh an influence that he had on me there is to uh establish and you know create dreamlike effects uh, right which right. is easy for me because i'm so influenced by my dreams as well yes so that was something that i was very attentive to in his process of yeah. working well inauguration of the pleasure dome is just a visually stunning movie it is. It's, it's beautiful. It's yes, and and, and well, I mean, honestly, so many of them are just stunning. But I I don't know how to choose which would be the favorite. Really. But yes, inauguration of the Pleasure Dome. It's absolutely beautiful, and incredible people in in that film too. 
Let's talk about Invocation of My Demon Brother, because that's yeah. the film that brings together a member of the Manson family and Bobby Beausoleil. Oh, sure. And the Rolling Stones. And I believe Susan Atkins also. I, I think there were some, I think there were some quick, quick cuts of Susan Atkins also. Really? Okay. Yes. I've seen that a million times, and I ha- I'll have to go back and look for her in that. There is a lady who seems to have a shadow of a mustache, and I believe, <laughs> and I believe that one is Sadie. All right. Well, Sadie did have that Sadie. little mustache. Yes. <laughs> well, shoot. I can't believe I missed that. I'll have to go look again. But it's a quick, very quick flash. All right. And, she, and she's looking... Like she's tripping out of her mind. Well, that would be Sadie. <laughs> With glazed eyes. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, but it, it's the film that, that brings the Manson family with Bobby Beausoleil and the Rolling Stones, because Mick did the soundtrack and briefly appeared in it along with yes. Keith. And then Anita Palenberg and Marianne Faithful right. also, they they have, they're in the audience at the, the Hyde Park show. That's what I was going to say. This is the weird thing is because there were clips taken from disparate. Yeah disparate places. It wasn't all shot obviously in one continuous place mm-hmm. in one in one in one way in one house. It was clips from all different um, times and places. It's not one of those. Because your dad even makes an appearance. Yes. Um, yes, that was only like a day shoot or maybe not more than two days at the most. Uh, and that was filmed at what was known as the Russian Embassy House, mm-hmm. where Kenneth was living at the time. And I'm not sure if Bobby Beausoleil was actually living there. He might have been living in a room or a flat elsewhere in the Hate or somewhere else. I don't remember. But that was the time that Kenneth was uh, wanting Bobby to be his Cupid. Did you ever meet him? I did not meet... You mean Bobby Bosley? Yes. I did not meet him. However, my sister did. Mm. And talking to her earlier today, I actually mentioned to her that I was going to be on your podcast. And I asked her, do you have any recollections of, of... Bobby and she said oh sure he stopped by the house once in a van that he was helping Kenneth move um Kenneth was moving out probably out of the Russian embassy actually and I guess they were on their way to go to Los Angeles and um he pulled up in front of our house the family house Mm -hmm. on California Street in the Richmond district and um apparently uh so that Kenneth could go in and get some pick up some of his stuff that he had left at our house and I guess say goodbye to my father or whatever. Yeah. And, um, and so while Kenneth was inside getting his stuff and, and saying goodbye, uh, my sister was outside talking to Bobby Beausoleil and she said, Oh yeah, he gave me some little trinkets. Wow. You were asking me about, uh, the film shoot of my father's part. We were talking about the little snippets of Hyde Park where Kenneth had filmed uh, mm-hmm. Jagger and who else was it? Marianne Faithful? Yeah, and Anita Palenberg sure. and Marianne Faithful. Oh, no, Anita Palenberg. Right, right. Correct. 
and um, and then those he spliced yeah. into he spliced into the film, um, and I think if I'm remembering correctly, he had originally intended those clips to go into Lucifer mm. Rising, but changed his mind, put them into Invocation of My Demon Brother, and then there was a short period of time when Bobby Beausoleil dropped out as the Cupid, or as, uh, not, uh, not, I'm not saying, as, as I should say, as uh, Kenneth's personal Cupid, but I'm saying when he dropped out as Lucifer, um, Kenneth was, I think, for a short while, contemplating mm-hmm. Jagger be, be Lucifer instead, but that, that was short-lived, and um, it was during that little interim period where he was able to get Mick Jagger to do that um, yeah. synthesizer impro- improvisation, which is interesting mm-hmm. in and of itself, only because it was it's a documentation of Mick Jagger's first experience trying to use a Moog <laughs> synthesizer. So, so on that merit, it's kind of interesting. Um, and some people, you know, actually like that as the soundtrack, and some people prefer the later version. But one thing that is interesting about all of Kenneth's films of the um, as far as I'm as far as I know of the later ones like uh, Invocation of My Demon Brother and um Lucifer Rising and what else is No, maybe just those two, I'm not sure. Is that there were different mm-hmm. versions. The there were different versions and he was always splicing and remixing and re editing and in in you know interjecting new little clips and scenes and sometimes actually sometimes it was sort of uh um you could say it was sort of cleverly done to if somebody was giving him backing for example some patron yeah. of the arts or something he'll say oh i'll put you in my film i'll put you in my film and then as it turns out he he was always saying that to everybody else but he said it to me too i'll put you i want you to be my fairy fairy princess in a film i'm making he always put i'm gonna put everybody he knows into the film which is great because he usually did incorporate everybody right. he knew into his films but if somebody gave him backing you know he'll say oh, oh you know i'll thank you for that by putting you in my film, and maybe actually, if the film didn't, the film that he had intended didn't come to fruition, then he would at least like take a snippet of that person and in, and stick it in yeah. one of the previous <laughs> films and say there and show it to share it to him and say there, there you are, you know, and uh, and the, so then that would be a different version. And there are so many, actually, there are so many different versions yeah. Yeah. of his films that you're kind of uh, you're kind of it's sort of a crapshoot is which one mm-hmm. you'll see and it's kind of interesting that way because it was an ongoing process and they were always right evolving. well how how close was he to anita palenberg well uh pretty close close enough that she did give him some okay. fun um she's one of those patrons of the arts mm-hmm. that i was talking about she was now whether the funding came directly from her or whether she facilitated it through other means, I don't know, but um, she did give him some funding, and she, I'm sure they shared some substances <laughs> together. <You> um, <laughs> they knew each other, yeah, they knew each other well, and the interesting thing is when they went to film in Egypt, you know, uh, I'm sure you've heard the, the stories that they almost got thrown yeah. out of Egypt because of her 
her habits. Yeah. So she jeopardized the she jeopardized the the production, and I think Marianne Faithful did also. Both of them um, jeopardized the production with their habits, and and that's not to say that Kenneth didn't have his substance abuse enjoyments, but I think he was trying to get a get a job done while he was there and didn't need didn't need the the um and, and I say that in relative terms. I mean he's I'm not saying he's without his own irresponsibility. He certainly was. But when he'd get focused on wanting to get something done, he could be very dictatorial. <laughs> so mm-hmm. yeah. Right. But they knew each other well. But I but I will say um in terms of close friendships with women and female females in his life definitely Cameron was the one but he knew Anita Pallenberg very well you know and of course they had they had the um what their the thing in common they had was their interest in magic and occultism black black magic and um so that was obviously the common denominator there yeah and she was very dark she was very dark Um, she, and not only was she very dark, but I'll say she was a driving force behind the style of the Rolling Stones and, and, you know, not just their style, but she introduced, she and both she and Marianne Faithful introduced the Stones to a lot of things that I don't think would have occurred to them to, to investigate or look into. And perhaps you could even say that Hallenberg was responsible for their going down the rabbit hole of black magic and Satanism and, and the things that ultimately led to the, um, you know, the dark phase of Altamont and all of that. What do you think Kenneth Anger's legacy is? Hmm. Well, I think it will undoubtedly be that he created an entirely new art form, an entirely Mm -hmm. new kind of genre of film, which is undeniable. And, And that's a legacy that I think we can be sure of. Yeah. Yeah. An entirely new genre, an entirely new art form, which has inspired countless, countless other other creators who are far more successful and far more wealthy and far more acknowledged and recognized than he is so far. Well, I love his work. Yeah. And and I I'm I'm so glad that I was exposed to it and I'm so glad that I've had the chance to talk to you. It has been a pleasure. Well, thank, thank you, you so know. much for coming on the show and talking about all kinds of stuff with me. Well, thank you very much as well. It was enjoyable for me to go sort of down this memory lane because, you know, I don't often think of the past, but this yeah. is a, a kind of adjacent to my own past and yet integrated with my past that was fun and interesting for me to open up those old files and look into my 
old boxes and find these little artifacts that Ken has sent me and refresh my memory about these yeah. things. So it was enjoyable for me. Also. Oh, I'm so glad. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Find out more about Zena at her website, zenashrek.com, where you can access her blog, Sonic Art and Performances, and Visual Art. You can also find her on Bandcamp, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Links are in the show notes. Visit the Rocket's Lip Vault for some special bonus material from Xena that you will not want to miss. That link is also in the show notes. Check out Tony Sokol's article, The Occult Influences of Sympathy for the Devil, online in Den of Geek. And follow Tony on Twitter, at T. Sokol. And finally, thank you to Zachary Lazar, whose novel Sway is the nexus of this whole entire episode. Visit his website, ZacharyLazar.com, to buy the book or pick up a copy wherever you buy books. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes of Rock is Lit to hear from more great rock novelists and special guests who will offer commentary on the music or musical events featured in these novels. If you like what you hear, subscribe, follow, and spread the word. And check out the Rock is Lit vault on my website for news, bonus material, and outtakes from episodes. Until next time, keep rocking and reading and getting lit. Rock is Lit! It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.